The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 28th chapter. Jesus spoke to the crowd saying, To what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. It's been kind of a busy week at Gloria Day, so I actually came in, drove in on uh, on uh, Tuesday, the 4th of July, to do a little sermon work, and, and I was listening on the way in to one of my favorite NPR shows, On Point, where an author by the name of Richard Zacks was talking about a book he had written about Mark Twain. The book is titled Chasing the Last Laugh. Here's a paragraph that I heard, and then they actually had it on their website. I was able to download it later. Samuel L. Clemens, the living, breathing man who sometimes wrote and performed as Mark Twain, was a wonderful hodgepodge of uplifting sentiment and bad habits, of flash mood swings from temper tantrums to jokes. He avoided curse words in deference to his wife, but he created a spectacular genre of vitriol. He smoked two dozen cigars a day. He demonized his enemies and former business partners. He haloed only his closest friends and helpers. He embodied so many contradictory traits in such ample helpings. Envy, generosity, suspiciousness, gullibility, loyalty, paranoia, arrogance, insecurity, that no one, not even he, could predict his moods. Mark Twain, Richard Zach said, was a deeply complicated man. And I'm paraphrasing now because I was driving, uh, not taking notes, but he talked about how what was maybe most complicated about Twain were his deep contradictions as well as, frankly, his deep flaws. But he said that Mark Twain was remarkably aware of those and, and he named them. He wrote both of them and he wrote from them. And it was that complicated transparency about who he was that made him and make him still to this day really funny, but even more so, really genius in the way that he allows us to see, by extension, some things about who we truly are too. 
So last week, we, if you were here, we kind of swam around in the really deep water of Romans chapter 6, the kind of dissonant theological waters that, you know, it was, it was pretty deep. Driving into the office on Tuesday, my full intent had been to, to not swim quite so deeply this week, but to go to the gospel text, and my goodness, one of the best promises Jesus ever speaks, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, I will give you rest. I am gentle, I will give you rest for your soul. I'm going to assume that preached all by itself, because I was driving in, and I heard that interview that defined all the complicated tra- tra- contradictions of what it was like being Mark Twain, and it drew me just straight back to the book of Romans because I knew that this week's reading was from chapter 7 where Paul, oh so transparently, writes both of and from the complicated contradictions of what he said defined what it was like being him. And so in Romans 7, 15, he writes, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the very things I hate. After which, in the rest of Romans, he does the same thing as he did in Romans 6. He just dives into deep, deep theological and also this time psychological waters, which frankly soon start again seeming way deeper than me. Having said that, though, I want to tell you that Romans 7 is actually one of my very favorite chapters of the Bible. Because while I do, on one hand, as I read it, I do feel that I'm in way over my head and I'm wondering what in the world once in a while he's talking about, simultaneously, I know exactly what he's talking about. For what he's talking about are the deep and complicated contradictions of what it means not to be Mark Twain nor Paul, But me, back to Romans 7, this time paraphrased, I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. The good thing I want to do, I don't do it. The evil that I don't want to do, I do it. What in the world is up with me? Am I the only one? Or do you, in fact, as well, know exactly what he's talking about too? Because you sometimes find yourself thinking, what in the world is up with me? Paul says that what's up with him is sin, which in the Bible's understanding, um, by the way, is widely misunderstood. In the Bible's understanding, the word sin refers to, oh, so much way more than this or that naughty or bad thing that someone does. For sin, in the Bible's way of thinking, runs way deeper than things done or things left undone. Sin, in the Bible's way of thinking, is the reason that we do or don't do some of the things that we do or don't do. Sin in the Bible's way of thinking is the condition we are in. It is the condition our hearts are in. It is the condition that births our not of God actions and our not of God inactions too. And the ground zero cause for the condition we're in is that our hearts were created to belong entirely to God, but they don't entirely. And our lives were created, we were created to live a life of complete and loving surrender to God, but we don't completely. 
Because why? Because we, and, and the Bible says this in a story that is as old as the story of Adam and Eve, clear back at the beginning of the Bible, which we talked about a few weeks ago, is not intended primarily as a story about two people way back then. It's a story about us. It's a story about all of us. It's the story about the human condition of Adam and Eve and Paul and me and you, who from the beginning still today keep on proving ourselves to be not fans of obediently to surrendering to the will of another, even if the other is God. We, Scripture says, in all kinds of ways and places, would much rather, we would way much rather backs turned to the Almighty God, we would rather be our own gods, doing what we darn well please rather than doing what would please our Creator. And that, if you're interested in kind of looking at big picture themes in the Bible's view of things, that is the ground zero, kind of big picture, sin-broken condition of human hearts that did birth and still continues to birth the sin-broken condition of our world. It gets deeper. Because furthermore, we heard Paul last week in Romans 6 clearly say this in a verse that we didn't even have time to get around to, Furthermore, backs turned to God and hearts separated from God doesn't just lead to one or two actions separated from the desires of God. Furthermore, Paul says, it morphs, it metastasizes into more actions separated from the desires of God, which in turn then produces hearts even further distant from God as the desires we are obedient to soon enough become the desires we are slaves to. Or in Paul's words, Romans 6, 16, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to Righteousness, righteousness. by the way, again being a Bible word that is often misunderstood because it doesn't mean looking down your nose thinking you're better than other people. It means being who you are by God meant to be, which to be clear means loving other people. What I hear Paul saying here in Romans 16 is that sin is addictive. Take up sinning is kind of like taking up you know, pick your poison. It's like taking up any one of those things that you start to do thinking it'd be cool. This would be fun. Besides, you are in control and you can quit anytime you want. And a lot of us have known how that goes. That also, Paul says in Romans 16, is how sin goes. You start thinking it would be cool. It would be fun. Besides, you are in control. You can quit anytime you want. Well, how's that gone for you? Quitting, sinning. What Paul says is that even though he's a believer, a Christian, a leader in the church who loves Jesus, none of that's been able to change the fact that quitting, sinning isn't something he's been able to get done. 
I want to stop sinning, says, Paul says. I want to be the person God wants me to be, but I know the truth. I haven't stopped sinning, and I'm not entirely who God wants me to be, which apparently means I've been swimming so long in the sin-infested waters of the condition I'm in that not sinning, being completely who God wants me to be, is something I can't do. Or as you might put it, I'm in bondage to sin and cannot free myself. And that is Romans 7, 15 to 24 in what might be thought of as kind of a theologically, psychologically depressing nutshell. So as Martin Luther might ask, what does this mean for us? Here's what I think. Paul is saying something here that a lot of churches and Christians don't ever say, and I think we need to. He believes in Jesus and loves Jesus and has Jesus in his heart, but he still struggles with living from the bottom of his heart the loving desires of Jesus in his daily life. Romans 7, just like Romans 6, is a complicated chapter, but one thing I like about it is the fact that the Paul we meet here, complicated and all, isn't fake. He's real, which includes being really and totally honest about the fact that he struggles some struggles that are real. Here's why I think Romans 7 is so important for Christians and for churches. Paul in this chapter confesses his wounds. And too often I think Christians shoot their wounded. Paul in this chapter confesses the sin that he hasn't gotten over yet, even though he believes in Jesus. And too often, on the other hand, I think churches and Christians point fingers of judgment at sinners. And they do so, they often say, in the name of Jesus. Paul in this chapter takes off every mask there is and unmasked, he says, here's the truth of what it's like to be a hopefully recovering, but I got to tell you, not yet fully recovered sinner named me. Too often, on the other hand, I think churches and Christians wear fake masks on top of more fake masks while looking down our tilty, pointed noses at sinners and saying, you should clean up your act and be like me which I think leaves sinners looking at Christians and their churches either thinking that we are really good people and are way better than them so they wouldn't possibly fit in here or it leaves sinners looking at Christians and their churches while seeing what we do do sometimes in our daily lives and assuming that there are nothing but hypocrites here and or it leaves Christians who do truly and really know themselves sitting in their churches looking at others and knowing they would not be accepted, they would be rejected if others really knew them. Paul was one of the great Christians ever. He wrote half of the New Testament for goodness sakes. But I think Romans 7 is one of the greatest chapters he wrote because it's not a chapter whose author is, hey, I am better than you losers, kind of a hypocrite. It's a chapter whose really great author is here vulnerable enough to be really truth-telling about who he was. Really. He was a real person who struggled his own real struggles, but he was too... Every time when he got deepest into his struggles, he too would ever turn and he would invite his readers and hearers to turn 
from those deepest struggles to the deep, deep, deepest of all waters there are, which are the deep, deep, deep and still waters of the grace of God made known in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Or, as he says it, to close Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 7 is a complicated chapter with some verses I don't understand. But the big picture of what he's saying, I do know what he's talking about, really. Because there are real struggles between what is of God and what isn't that I struggle to. As I know, I don't know all the specifics or details, but I know the times that you come into my office, some of you, and you tell me the specifics and details, you do not shock me because I already knew that you're human. I never didn't think that there are struggles between what is good and what is evil that you struggle to, that you don't struggle to. I want you to know, I believe I am remiss in my calling from God unless I tell you that God knows that there are struggles between what is good and what isn't that you struggle to. And God being God does know all the specifics and the details, as does his son who took all of your specifics and details with him to a cross that you might know that it's not the fake you. It's the real you, the real each of us and all of us whom he oh so deeply loves. And knowing that it is the real me, the real you, the real us whom he loves, he calls us to be real and to be a real church where real people who aren't fake but real, give their grace-fueled best shot at loving one another and reaching out into the world to love others too, others who aren't fake but real like us. And you know what? Just as Paul, according to him anyway, sinning more would become better at sinning because sin is addictive, loving more would become better at loving. Because loving, it turns out, is not just addictive, it's contagious. And love, while it won't in this life make us perfect, love will, love can, love alone can grow us in the direction of who we are called to be. Real people who gather together as a real church where we know that we are loved by a real God and where we do together get never in this life perfect but better at loving one another and others, imperfections and all. And along the way, perhaps becoming better at loving ourselves too, warts and all. Which would be, I think God thinks, that would be real good. Amen.